First reading is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The second reading is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 23, and um, up into chapter 4, verses 7. Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore... The law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no, sub no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Jesus Christ, we are all children of God through faith. As many of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. My point is this. Heirs, as long as they are minors, are no better than slaves, though they are the owners of all the property but they remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the Father. So with us. While we were minors, we were enslaved to the eternal elemental spirits of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. I found in a lot of places that the act of standing up and preaching as a female preacher, and often one of the youngest people present in the worship, means that I have to be a little aware of whether I sound uh, more liberal than people are comfortable with, whatever we might 
quite mean by that word. It's not a word I like very much. And it struck me with some amusement uh, that at Bloomsbury, for the first time in my life, I might actually face the opposite problem. And so I must add a quick disclaimer that all views represented here are my own and not that of my employer. <laughs> and also more seriously, when I was asked to preach on gender-inclusive church, I knew that you would have a separate chance to think about the inclusivity of those who are trans. This is entirely good because my particular blend of labels, being a cis white middle-class woman, does not qualify me to talk on that, only to listen. And so I hope for those of you who are thinking or rethinking gender inclusivity from that space today, rather than my rage against the patriarchy sort of place, um, you do not feel in any way dehumanized by the language that I'm going to be using. If there is one message present in our creation text today and in our Galatians text today, it is that God humanizes us and no one else. And so I pray for your grace if I presume things that don't speak for you or about you. But again, even from my where are the women in leadership rage stance, I find myself looking at Bloomsbury and thinking, so, what am I going to add here? You've had and continue to have excellent women in ministry and women in leadership roles. I can preach sermons on the curse of Eve, but I will have heard better from your sermon podcasts. I could preach on the language of headship or any one of those tricky passages that people get out to limit the way in which, in which women can serve God, but you've got someone in Simon here who helped write some of the denominational Bible studies on why women should be in ministry. So what I can tell you is that we need churches who call women, and we need the Bible studies that acknowledge their leadership. A century after our union started accrediting and ordaining our women in ministry, we are still stuck at 16% of our ministers being women. The stats look better for those who are training for ministry, but they've looked better for a while. Are they gradually improving the numbers as people come through the system, or are we hemorrhaging our women in ministry sometimes during, sometime during or shortly after training. We don't track the individuals through, so we don't know. We have our first female general secretary who takes one for the team on the world stage, but we have only one female regional team leader. There are 12, I believe. And then let's get on to what we don't know. We don't hold stats about how many women in ministry go in younger than 40, which might not sound like much, but if we want people with 25 years of pastoral experience to become our regional ministers, then we need people who train young. We don't really know how many women have babies in ministry and the particular set of practical challenges that that comes with. We haven't got good stats on women in ministry from BAME backgrounds, but we know that there aren't many and we struggle to keep the ones that we have. 
We don't know, but anecdotally, we are told that a lot more of our women in ministry than men in ministry seem to be single or married to another minister with whom they often share a pastorate. And then there's the questions about pay. Women seem to be paid far less and fewer given full housing allowances than, them, than men. Women are more likely to work part-time. Only one woman is classed as the minister of one of our union's larger churches. Women are far, far more likely to be associate ministers. And I don't mean co-minister, I mean the assistant type of associate minister, often with specialised briefs for pastoral care or for families or for children and youth work. But though we know, sort of, we don't really know. It's all anecdotal. And if you ask why, and I ask why, the answers are always rather vague. They choose to be part-time. Or they don't apply for those roles, so how can we give them to them? There's a sort of shrug that we are conditioned by our society to be a certain sort of way in our male and female roles. And the church, well, it's, it's not really able to fix that. But if we really think that, then we don't have a very high estimation of God's redemption abilities. And I don't think that's true. I think we do have a high estimation of God's redemption abilities. I think we've just missed what we think redemption is. So let me explain. The church has, I think, had three broad views, and I mean the church global and not just the Baptist Union, um, on how redeemed male and female roles should be understood. The first one is the one I'm going to call hierarchy. This is where men have some sort of God-given authority over women. Men and women were created to be different. Women's permitted roles vary a bit, but the general gist is that men, by virtue of being men, need to rule society, the church, and the home. There's been an amazing um, tick list going around Twitter of what constitutes Christian maleness from a conservative evangelical church in the States, and it included eating steak, wearing vests, and taking your Bible to church. I scored very highly on my biblical maleness. <laughs> this is the view that we know we need to challenge in our own denominational life or in uh, perhaps in people that we come across who, who don't agree with women in ministry. This is a view I would mostly expect not to be present here in Bloomsbury on the basis that you've called women and you do call women to pastorate and in fact the fact that I am preaching here at all. The next version of how we see redeemed male and female roles is a clever subversive twist on this. This is the version that we see in most of our evangelical churches that ordain women, and it goes something like this. God created men and women differently, but that's precisely why you need us women in ministry. You need the different styles and the patterns that we bring. Men in instead need to realize they need women in order to rescue them from the patriarchal structures of their own making. Instead of having men in charge of the church, we need to reclaim the partnership. Men and women ministering together 
And this is the main argument we've used for our inclusivity of women in ministry and church leadership over the last 40 years or so. And we mostly argue it from the Genesis reading that we've heard today. Men and women patterned differently in our biology, which together reflects the image of God, or so we say. Gender difference is the, in the heart of God's self. And so we need it, we argue, to be at the center of the church's way of being as well. But then there's a third view. I'm gonna call it the deconstructing view. I say it like that's popular, it isn't, it's just my questions. But it goes like this. If women's ministry is there to save men's corrupt patriarchal ministry, then women are still just there to serve men, aren't they? And if we say there are male ways and female ways of being in ministry and leadership, then these seem to restrict women in ministry to things like pastoral care, being good at families. What about those men who are amazing at pastoral care and the women who are great at strategic vision? And can we look at our biology and understand who God is and, or is that to get it entirely the wrong way around? And if this passage about being created male and female is for church leadership, then this also leads us into some really dodgy territory about those relationships that the co-ministers in their perfectly patterned partnerships, because notice we don't swap men in soul pastorate to women in soul pastorate, but men in soul pastorate to women sharing a pastorate. So when they're co-ministering together, it leads us into some slightly dodgy territory if we use this creation narrative about the sort of relationships those ministers might have together. If we think the creation partnership is the one we should apply to church leadership, do we really want them to be fruitful and multiply together or is that something that gets taken up by ministries division as a disciplinary issue? So then, of course, as Baptists, we don't see our ministers and our church leaders as having the authority either. We see our church meeting as having the authority. And so the idea that somehow two people particularly represent the image of God rather than the whole body of Christ representing the image of God, that leads us into some really interesting views about what we really think we're doing in having ministers in our churches. Are we really being Baptist anymore if that's our argument for why women should be in ministry? The challenge is that all these positions all claim to be biblical. And more than that, they all use this particular bit of Genesis that we've heard this morning to argue their position. The first hierarchical view says that when we arrive at the sixth day, the goodness of the last five days has, has been mounting in all that time and God creates man. The word humankind is Adam, the word that eventually becomes the name of the male earthling. So God creates man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. And we should be aware that where our reading has translated humankind and created them into the plural, there is a singular meaning in the original Hebrew. And so the argument goes, men, not women, are the primary image bearers of God. 
God's maleness is suggested, and men receive this honour of maleness. And women, we sort of get tucked in, included, an end note to the original design. Have this then as the, at the start of God's word, and it begins to provide a pattern, a template, for how we read all of the stories that come next in our scriptures. How they begin to shape the view of who we are. And so we find men at the top of our structures and systems because this is what we think redemption and wholeness looks like. Men as the heads of families and institutions that are commanded to be fruitful, to multiply, to take over. Except this template misses are the key dimensions of the way this story is trying to shape us. And so we come to our next view. The view that men and women's difference is written in a radically equal way. It says the word earthling, Adam, this clay person made out of dirt, is associated only with men after the fall, after it all goes wrong. At this point, before the fall, it means something much more neutral, more plural male and female, a patterned diversity that seems to reflect the plurality of God's desire. Let us make them in our image. These views, um, <coughs> this view points out the shocking radical inclusion of women in the narrative at all. Female is there, not tagged into the end, but the whole of this creation story is directed so that the last thing is shown to be best. This view explores again, what did it mean to be made in the image on likeness of God? Image, after all, is a rare word for our Hebrew author, and the root meaning is to cut or to hew, to carve, to sculpt, to create a pattern that resembles something else identifies something as being similar in some way. We do not image God as a mirror or as a selfie, where we can look at ourselves and work out who God is. But God has been etched into being the extraordinary masterpiece of God's creation. God has carefully crafted us and molded us and said, this is good. We are more than good. We are really good, so blessed so beautiful and in this mold we are given the ability as a wider humanity in all our plurality to be fruitful and multiply we share this blessing with the animals this is not a static creation but a living breathing ongoing creative act this male and female template this reproducing pattern which is copied from the heart of god's own maleness and femaleness and so the argument goes, we must copy God's maleness and femaleness. We must apply it into the very way we shape church for our own generation and for the future. We must ensure the female lines, the femininity, is as prominent as the masculinity. But when we do, we find that women and men seem to consistently break the moulds. We are critical when women lead like men, or women dress like men. And so we begin to think, not that we have made the mold too static, 
that we have missed, but we have missed the point with our carbon copies, our identically manufactured views of what this might mean. But some say instead that, well, maybe the women and the men didn't come out of the mould quite right. Some men need redefining. Some women need the rough edges filing off, neatened up, made pretty again. And we create these prototypes of masculinity and femininity, and we put them on the shelf to remind us this is what we should become because it's what God is. There's a great sketch by Mitchell and Webluck that parodies the adverts that we see. Uh, with the voiceover beginning, do you suffer from gut agony, women? Tension head, inevitable wrinkles, beginnings of a lady mustache. Women, you are leaking, aging, hairy, overweight, everything hurts and your children's clothes are filthy. For God's sake, sort yourselves out. Men, shave and get drunk. You are already great. <laughs> and here I worry we do the same in church. Women need to sort out femininity. Women need to reclaim feminine ways of being. And when they are finished, they need to sort out the masculinity and the patriarchy as well. And it's probably time some of those prototypes on the shelf needed dusting and the men blatantly aren't going to get on and do it. But have, have we missed something in that original creation mandate if we stick with that view? Because God says to God, let us create humanity in our image and in our likeness. It's an odd combination of words, but there's a time outside of scripture when we see those words also used together. And it's in an ancient Aramaic inscription about a statue of a king. Behold, here is a symbolic representation of their God in their ruler, it says, in it is in the image and in the likeness of God their king is. In fact, the Egyptians and the Assyrians used to describe their king as the image of God. Not everyone, the, the king and only the king. And here in the artistic narrative about the creation of something beautiful that we have in our Old Testament, God democ democratizes this image-bearing God extends image-bearing from the powerful and extends it to everyone. Everyone that will ever be. Not just kings, not just global corporations who manufacture our identities and our identity crises and then sell us the product that will solve it for us. Not just church leaders and biblical scholars of old, but everyone, every single person that will ever be bears the image of God and is God's representative on earth. And the kings of the time were called to be devoted to the welfare of their subjects, to the flourishing of everyone in society, especially the poorest and the weakest. We are not called to be a government of elitist, privately educated, protected people, but people who advocate and seek the change of those who need it. We are called to be the kings, the God-bearers who rub alongside those who are most vulnerable, to learn from their experience, to challenge their injustice, and to find in the process that we continue to be reshaped and to reshape our society for this generation and the next. We create a space for fruitfulness, a space in where people can delight in the bounty of plenty, plenty of food, plenty of seeds for the future, plenty of hope that there will not 
that there will not just be food for this season, but food for the next as well. An oddly political reading for a political time. Because one of the challenges of using the creation story as a one-fit-all model for maleness and femaleness is that we miss our embeddedness in this world. We miss our uniqueness, and we miss the discussions about what God has to say as much about what our bodies should eat as, ha- as how they represent God and then also bear the next generation. We can think that we are modelling our society and our church life on God's breathed words, and we should, but we must constantly revisit the dynamic movement of the original score. And if we are still hesitant that we are moving away from scripture, if we critique those static ways of being male and female, and leading church in ways that are male and female, and leading societies in ways that are male and female, There was another passage that we also heard this morning, which directly quotes our creation story. It picks up on that idea of generations, of fruitfulness and multiplying. It talks about children. And it says, in the recreated world, being children looks a bit different. We are heirs. We share in the power and the utter vulnerability of the Christ child. We share in the inheritance of an entirely new way of being. We are first fruits, where the static patterns of the world, which chafers and breakers, which rub us raw when we don't fit them, find themselves undone. There is no slave nor free, no Jew nor Greek, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. We have been recreated, rebirthed, reiterated. And here we notice that instead of being born in that direct way of, of birthing the next generation, the way you become part of this creation And the way this creation is extended is now by adoption. Redemption is not about going back to the before the fallen world began. It is about looking at a new image of God, a king, who came as God's representative on earth. And it is about realizing that he is the first fruit of this new creation, and so we are invited to share in this new way of participating in the world. We are invited to share in the repatterning of our world. And so, I want to leave you with these words which I spotted when I was given this sheet that we're going to sing in just a few moments. How can we revere God's goodness meant for all time? How ensure that each uniqueness keeps in its prime? How can we revere with pleasure all God's gifts for life and for leisure? How preserve each earthly treasure meant for all time? I think when we talk about inclusivity of gender, we always have to be aware 
of our own power in how we formulate those models of male and female. But more than that, we always have to go back to the word that breathes new life, to the God who breathes wholeness and change and challenge, and discover there that God is doing something new in us and in the world, and we get to come along for that journey. And it might not look like it used to look, but it could be that it is very, very, very good indeed. Dear God, we come before you this morning first to thank you for this church, uh, for this church that has the courage to speak up and wrestle with things that need wrestling with and figure out how to make th things right. We pray that you give us wisdom in the months to come as we discern our vision for the future. We also thank you for this city that gives us so much opportunity um, for growth uh, as individuals and as a church. But we also pray for everyone who feels that their voice isn't heard or their struggle is in vain or everyone who is belittled by the other, who is more powerful. We pray for peace, for patience, and for changing the whole world. We pray that there are more people who see outside of their own environment, or how we call it now, outside of their own bubble. And we pray that people come together to build a vision for the whole world. Amen. <laughs>